So, um, Jeremiah, there are a number of things about uh, introducing this book that are significant. Uh, there are all kinds of different opinions. I'm giving you mine. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, got a bunch of facts in it, but of course, you know, as we're looking at his life um, and his message, you end up gleaning from that, interpreting it, and, you know, not changing it, but it has such personal application. So, very, very important book in all of the scripture. Um, Jeremiah basically comes on uh, the scene uh, to tell the kings that uh, the end is near. You know, it's kind of like the sky is falling message. And as such, it's sort of rejected. Uh, one, the people aren't living that way. They're not living in obedience to God. They're not following God with their lives. And so they're not prepared. They're not ready to receive Jeremiah's message. And then when it comes, it's nothing they want to hear. They, they're not interested in uh, following after him. And the biggest reason that that's going on is there's a very large group of prophets that are saying everything's going to be fine. So, you know, so picturesque of our culture and the world around us. You know, there's all kinds of different variations on the message. We're going to be fine. <laughs> very few people are standing up and pointing that very hard direct message at the hearts and minds of the human race to say, there's a God, you must be accountable, repent of your sins. There's very, very few people that will, you know, boldly, unflinchingly do that. You know, I, I don't say that as though I am one. I, you know, I hope I am, but, you know, this man is under serious trial to, uh, in, you know, in order to deliver this message. So it's, it's a, you know, he's thought of very often as this soft, tender prophet, but I just see, such an emotional and spiritual fortitude in this man and the way that regardless of how unaccepted he is he continues in the obedience to the lord there's punishment jail horrible things uh, that he has to endure and yet um, he's there to say the sky is falling because well it is and so so he wants that message uh, to come across he's often known as the weeping uh, prophet. I just want to be very clear. He was also very tough uh, in in his personal endurance and in his messages. You know, if if you ever wanted to look at a guy in the scripture that stood up on principle and just stood in the face of opposition and declared what was there, I mean, Daniel, Jeremiah is one of them. You know, weeping prophet, right? Because he was allowing this message to hit him full force. When God said, repent, and Jeremiah had to declare that to the nation, he did it first. He ate the whole of the message and consumed what God was delivering to him. So he was a very serious prophet in that regard. Now, you know, the toughness, the softness in Jeremiah, very reflective of Jesus. You know, in my mind, Jeremiah very much reflects Jesus. Same spirit working within him, the Holy Spirit, causes him to have, you know, these incredible messages. You see Jesus uh, come in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, saying, uh, thank you. Uh, what do men say uh, that I am? Or who do men say that I am? The Son of Man, you know, who am I? And uh, they said, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. 
others, say Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Why did they pick Jeremiah specifically out of that? Why, you know, you know, Elijah, you can kind of see fiery prophet and, you know, great intensity. Oh, sure, Jesus. You know, why did they pick Jeremiah the prophet to say, oh, you're, you're like Jeremiah? Well, I think that the, you know, weeping might have had something to do with that. When, you, when you're talking about Jeremiah, we'll look at Jesus in a moment, but you know, here is a guy who also wrote the entire book of Lamentations. right? So, so he, he just says, hey, you know what, let's just get down to uh, talking about the sorrow that is consuming us and should be consuming us. Uh, you know, Lamentations is a very intense book as far as you know, what was coming for Jerusalem and the sorrow that it brought the prophet which was the sorrow that it brought the Lord. Which brings me to what Jesus, you know, is, is you know, saying in Luke chapter 19. It starts out in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, speaking of Jerusalem, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. You will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Tender, weeping, brokenhearted Jesus in the situation, you know, looking at what it was that, you know, the people needed spiritually in their lives you see jesus again being tough so tender tough weeping confrontational um i think of matthew chapter 23 verse 26 when he just says directly to the pharisees blind pharisees yeah it's that's quite a thing to look somebody in the face who is a spiritual leader of a nation and say to their face you're spiritually blind that, that implies everything I'm doing is in blindness, without knowledge, without understanding, without any leadership or guidance. Jesus you know, confronts them. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be clean also, Jesus said to them. Tough, hard, direct, weeping, tender prophet. They liken Jesus unto him. Now, uh, note takers as far as introduction goes and outline uh, chapter one Jeremiah's preparation a, a number of things are described there uh, you can miss uh, some of them as you move through it rapidly about what God was doing to prepare him and and, and what uh, you know the nation and circumstances and kings and you know all that was around was doing to prepare Jeremiah. So if you take the time to uh, really take this outline and look, uh, the entire first chapter is a description of Jeremiah's preparation. Chapter 2 through 45 uh, give proclamations against Judah specifically. They're detailed. There are a lot of different circumstances that he predicts and describes, uh, you know, lays out uh, promises to them and punishment to them so there's uh, you know lots of proclamation to judah in 2 through 45 now 46 through 51 is unique 
in that its proclamation against other nations. We see Isaiah do a similar thing that we just finished. Um, most significantly, as you move through, look for God's proclamations against the nations who have come against Israel and Judah. So one of the you know, core messages of Isaiah, and it certainly plays into here, is God is confronting those nations saying, hey, you've gotten really full of yourself. You know, I've given you power. I've given you authority. You are being used to come into Israel and exact my correction and my punishment upon my people. But that's no place for you to be arrogant. That's no place for you to be excessively abusive. The power that you've been given is, in fact, from God. But you're abusing it, is what he has to say. He addresses, you know, some other nations also, but mostly in direct connection with their interactions with Israel and more specifically Judah there in the south. And then in chapter 52, one of the rare prophets, you actually get to see the predictions, many of the predictions of Jeremiah come true. So you know, he's one of the few that lived into the finish line where you know others predicted and passed away before the fruition of what they were speaking. Jeremiah was there to literally say, and this is what I was talking about. And this is what the Lord predicted. And you're experiencing this because I said that there and you didn't follow. And now look at us. So 52 is kind of unique in that way. So I'm not going to uh, begin the reading of Jeremiah, uh, but you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 and look at verse 1 uh, by way of introduction. It starts out with, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, everybody knows him, and the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, that's a little town about three miles from Jerusalem. And uh, as such, uh, Jeremiah has had a front row seat for all of the nonsense that has gone on. You know, three miles is walking distance, even today, you know. You got no wheels, man. You know, you could say, well, three miles, I can hoof it into town, especially if you live in a you know fair weather country like Israel. You could you could make it there. So this is like, you know, next door as far as their experiences go. This this is literally like just running into town, you know, three miles away. So uh, then uh, looking at Jeremiah chapter one at verse three. It says, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Now, I, I take that verse because Jeremiah's ministry was 40 years during the reign of five separate kings. So, again, note takers, if you want to follow this in line, uh, the first king that we discuss is Josiah. He was a spiritual reformer. And, uh, you know, and important to understand that while Josiah was, you know, a powerful spiritual reformer, uh, that was a lot like, you know, legislating righteousness is essentially what I might say. You know, that they were, you know, as the king and as the leadership, as the government, they were saying to the people, okay, no more 
of this pagan idolatry. You know, we will now restore proper forms of worship. And then the high places to the pagan gods, they've got to go. And they, you know, they go through this process, but it's really, you know, a leadership driven thing. It's so much better when, you know, a, a revival begins in the hearts and minds of every single person in a culture. Whether they even, you know, respond to it properly, the stirring, the action of the Holy Spirit that, you know, would, could, or might cause them to come to repent. When everyone's heart, when you have a, a, a small group of people who control the larger group, and that small group of people says, hey, this is a mess. Let's put things in order. Let's reform our nation and restore worship and do these good, right, and proper things. That's good, but in the end, as soon as you lift that off, that leadership, the people just fall back into the cesspool that they were in. So he's there speaking during the reign of Josiah, and, and you know a lot of his message coincides with what uh, you know Josiah is doing. At times, it's confrontational. Because the people's worship isn't right. Their hearts aren't right. So he's got things to say about that. Now, from there, the second king, uh, Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, reigned for a grand total of three months. So, you know, short-lived king, short-lived message, short-lived rebellion. Uh, He was there, Jeremiah, faithfully declaring what the Lord wanted him to declare. Uh, The people's hearts uh, did not follow. Now, at that point, the Egyptians put Eliakim into place. His name was changed to Jehoiakim, which adds to some confusion when you're trying to follow all of this. But, you know, the the leadership and roles of all the surrounding nations in there and influence in Israel, the rebellion of Israel against the likes of Egypt and the other conquering nations causes it to be like this, that Egypt inserts their ruler on the throne. We're, we're not going to put up with your junk. And that uh, you know, continues on for 11 years. Uh, Jer- Jeremiah told him, don't rebel against Babylon. We've, we've got a Babylonian king uh, that's going to conquer, and uh, you need to submit him. And that's where he was labeled as being treasonous, that, that he was a rebel. He was you know, living in rebellion to the nation and the king, and really all he was doing is submitting to the higher authority of God and saying, you know, this this is going to happen, and the thing that will make it better for you as a king and as, you know, the people is uh, to uh, submit to the, the uh, conquering of the Babylonians. So <coughs> from there, uh, <coughs> the Babylonians put in uh, Jehoiachin. Now, Jehoiachin is, uh, or you can say Jehoiachin, I'm not sure which one is, um, uh, more proper in their original language. He was a puppet king, and he also was there for three months and ten days. So another uh, short-lived experiment there. From that point, uh, Zedekiah, the last on the throne, uh, was there until 586 BC when Babylon sacks Jerusalem, and he tries to escape. You may remember. And uh, they pursue him, caught him in the Jordan Valley, and gouged out his eyes at that point, and uh, then uh, took him away to Babylon. So he was there from Josiah, Eliakim, uh, you know, Jehoiakim, and uh, Zedekiah through uh, those. Uh, 
am I trying to say? Like uh, ruling um, times for those kings, their, their, their reign over the land. And he was faithful to deliver his message throughout. Now in verse 5, it says, Before I was formed, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Uh, this is one of the strongest verses in all of the scripture that tells us, you know, the best we can say here is that life begins at conception. I would say I have the right, based upon verse 5, to even speculate and tell you that life begins before conception. Odd as that may be, right? We were predestined before the foundations of the world. Well, how can I be predestined if God doesn't even know if I'm going to exist? That must mean that God knows of my existence before I exist, so therefore life begins before conception. Strange as that may be, we're not the authors of life. God is. You start killing off that which he created, you're going to have to answer to him. God is the one who's it. But we can at least say, Based upon Jeremiah chapter one verse five, that life begins at conception. You know, for you know, the world's going to argue with that, and if we get an opportunity, we'll try to share the truth with them. But the church should not have any confusion about that. It, it sickens me, and I'm sure it sickens the Lord to hear these politicians declare themselves Christians and then work so adamantly to kill the unborn. Makes me sick to my stomach. Just, I mean, push me to the edge. How does the Lord take that? It's a grace of God these guys aren't just grease spots wherever they exist. You know what I'm saying? That he hasn't just smoked them right where they stand. It's the grace of God. Because if it was you and me, left to our own evil intentions and our sinful thought process, we'd probably do something wicked. See, God wants even them to come to repentance. This is how much he values life, that the dirtbag that would kill an unborn child like that would be loved by Christ. So if we're one of those people sitting in this room, understand how much Christ loves us, how far his mercy extends, how gracious his kindness. What a, what a loving, merciful God. Here, I'll put it to you a different way. I, I wonder, I wonder how many prophets we've killed along the way. Before they ever came into this world, I wonder how many prophets we've killed. Prophetess. Servants of God. It'll be interesting to know these things. How about this, you guys? If you knew a woman who was pregnant, who had given birth eight times, three were deaf, two were blind, one mentally disabled. She herself has tuberculosis. Would you recommend that she have an abortion? You can take that home and think about it. Mull, you know, pause the message right here and think about it as long as you want to. When you get done with your answer, if you said yes, you would have just killed Beethoven. His mother, pregnant, already given birth eight times. Three were deaf, two were blind, one was mentally disabled, and she had tuberculosis and gave birth to Beethoven. 
What would the world, we would have been without all of his work. So many, oh, they want to present these wild cases. Oh, this woman in these scenarios, in this situation. So clearly we should abort this child. No, not clearly. No, not clearly. Sometimes those those that endure the worst hardships in the world come out with the most glorious message for the entire human race you could imagine. Right? It's the hardships of life that teaches things, right? How can we say of these children who are facing hardships, oh, they don't deserve to live? We're going to offer them something better. Yeah, maybe you are offering them a free pass straight into the presence of the Lord. Or maybe what you're doing is ripping the rest of us off. Right? Maybe these people have the cure for cancer. Maybe they're the most you know, profound you know, musician, composer we've ever heard. Artist, actor, who knows what, right? And we're throwing them away. All in the name, listen, guys, here, take this message with you, please. All in the name of contraception. That's, that's what we're doing. We're using abortion as birth control. It's horrendous. Horrendous. So, again, not to throw any condemnation on anybody. That's, that's a full-on explanation of God's grace and an invitation into his forgiveness. Wherever we might be with you know that behavior and uh, such experiences, then you know that's that's uh, certainly a message that's endorsed by the scripture. Now look at verse six. He and this is just I'm trying to bottle up an overarching introduction here. So Jeremiah chapter one verse six. Uh, then said I, Oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, <coughs> for I am a youth between. 20 and 25 is what he was. So this young man, which might have a degree of education and understanding, but you know that for, by and large, you know, everyone that's older than him in the nation of you know, Israel, or now in, in Judah in the south, is probably going to reject him. Why? Because he's just a 20-year-old kid. You know, we, we do that. We we don't listen to the message. We we do summaries of people's whole personality based upon so many outward things, right? You want a king? Oh well, let's give you your ideal king, head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul starts out in humility, gotta hide amongst the luggage in order to keep from being inaugurated as king, dragged out inaugurated, sent off, pride fills his head. The dude's the worst jerk anybody's ever seen sit on the throne of Israel. (sighs) David, when Samuel goes to Jesse's house to anoint him, he goes through all the brothers and, oh, the big impressive. Yeah, this, no, that's not the guy. God says to his heart, look for that. No, that's not him. Well, surely that, no. Is there anybody else? Don't you have any other kids? He says to Jesse. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if the prophet of Israel is coming to your house and you were told, assemble your whole family, you probably would get the whole family. Jesse's got it in his mind. I'm not saying to what degree he thinks David meaningless, but he's got it in his heart and mind that David's insignificant enough that he doesn't need to be called to the table when the prophet is there. 
And there we get that message where the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, I don't look on things the way that men do. You've been impressed with all these big guys and all of their prowess and their beauty and masculinity. And I got a punk kid that's tending sheep who's going to come in here and show you how it's done. Going to show you what it means to be obedient uh, to me. 20-year-old young man. They're going to despise me because of my youth. What did, what did Paul have to tell Timothy? Do not let them despise your youth. Those that you're pastoring, do not let them. How do you do that? How do you not let somebody despise your youth? That means you're going to have to be looking for it, right? If you're young Timothy, you're going to have to recognize when somebody is sort of brushing you off and go over and get in their face and say, hey, I think you're brushing me off. And maybe it's because I'm younger than you. But let me just explain something to you. That anointing from the Lord is not man-made. And I'm here with his message in my mouth. And if you're rejecting me, you're rejecting him. Now, people look at that as arrogance. But that's the truth of the matter. When the man has been anointed, you don't get to say, well, he's only 20. Why do I got to listen to that? I'm 50. Why do I got to listen to 25-year-old guys half my age? He, hasn't even, he probably hasn't even experienced half of what I've experienced. Oh, he's anointed by the Lord, and the Lord's message is his mouth, so you probably want to listen. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8. There, he says, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you out of this. So when you go in, right, don't be afraid of their faces. Well, that, that's kind of an odd way of putting it. Well, the temptation might become, uh, you know, maybe I should just start writing them letters. I'll just send them letters. And if they burn the letter, that's their problem. But at least I don't have to be there for the interaction. Maybe I should just, you know what I'll do? Forget this whole church. Let's just do a blog. Yeah. You know, you know what? Let's just do, let's just do Facebook Live and stop because, man, when I say it right to people, they get so mad. And they reject me, and I just, you know what, I'm really just looking for likes. <laughs> you know, followers is what I'm just, how many friend requests do I have? Oh, this is the summary of the human race, not just the modern human race. This is who we've always been. He's scared of their faces, and God says, don't do that. Don't do that. You stand right up in their face, and you declare to them the message. I'll protect you. I wonder if he felt protected as he was being imprisoned and, you know, tortured and beaten and, you know, maltreated. Right? We, we talked about it last night in the men's study, how the Lord, you know, came to save the world from its sin. He didn't come to save Israel from Rome, the invading, conquering army. Jesus didn't tell us he was going to deliver us from trouble. In fact, he guaranteed, he promised us, in this life, you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble in this life. You're going to have tribulation and persecution. I promise you that, the Lord was saying. What he came to deliver us from was sin. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're about to be thrown in the furnace, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this fire is going to deliver us from you one way or another. 
We're either going to be delivered from you by the fire or through the fire. We're either going to be incinerated in there and never have to deal with you again, or we're going to come out of this unscathed, and then your blasphemous mouth is going to be shut. It's interesting, when you read that account, they went through and the only thing that was burned up were the ropes that they were tied with. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. That's pretty remarkable. When you can go through a trial and not even smell like the trial you're in. Right? I don't do that. I go through the trial and I smell like the heap of garbage that it is. Just still trying to figure that out. You know, whine and cry and complain and anybody that's near me knows the trial I'm going through. You know, I'm, I'm some ways through it when I begin to realize how childish I'm being. You know, I know you guys aren't like that, but, you know. <laughs> Pray for me. You know what I'm saying? It's just human condition. Hey, don't be afraid of their faces. You know, and I would remind us again of First Timothy chapter four, verse twelve, where Paul said, "Let no one despise your youth." You know, it's it's an example that uh, the Lord has given them. He goes on to tell Timothy, "Be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and impurity." Don't don't be afraid. Stand right up now. And uh, the following uh, were written 60 years after uh, the start of the the church. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, uh, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now, living water, moving water, right? That's that's what's being said. This is not stagnant water. This is fresh, rejuvenated water all the time is, is what is being said. The, the message that the Lord is saying is you, you've built yourself storage tanks that are broken. And this was a common thing in their culture, and they were very aware of it. Now, they would do different things to create cisterns. They would uh, take basins uh, in the stone that were already there naturally, and they would cut and carve and flume water sources into them. So now you got a big basin that's storing them. They would try to cover it over and put like rock plates on top of it so that sort of got water underground. Sometimes they would carve it right out of soft limestone, just cut the stone and make a huge cavity inside. So, so, well, the problem is broken cistern. And that was something they understood very well. Work, invest all your money, go through all this great you know, length to gather and capture every amount of spring and rain water and you know, runoff that you could get and to discover that your cistern's broken. That's not just... You know, that it's going to drain out and you don't have any. The worst problem with a broken cistern was pollution. You put it in there and it's gathering water and you're like, great. And then you come to discover that, oh, this thing is cracked and split and just filled with mud and muck and crickets and just all the bad things. You, you've created for yourself a cesspool. Rather than someplace that you could drink from, you've created a stagnant mess. So this is 
the whole picture of what God is saying. I'm living water. I'm, I, I, my spiritual fulfillment can come to you fresh daily. And, and instead, what you've done is hewn out broken. What is the broken? Well, you know, hammer away on Abraham is our father. Hammer away on the history, the past, right? A cistern stores water from the past. Does that make sense to you? Does that statement make sense to you? The, the living water is coming to you fresh. So they're hammering up. We have the law. We're deeply spiritual. See what we can drink from? We're storing up all of this history, all of this lineage, all of this genealogy, all of these written works. That's what's going to save us. And the Lord is saying, no, not at all. You're just getting the runoff and storing it in a cistern that's busted. You know, you're either bone dry, you think you got water, and you look in and your cistern's broken and it's, you know, dry, or it's polluted. Either one of those illustrations is accurate, and the Lord is saying, you're, what you've stored up for yourself is useless. Useless. You need to have that daily, fresh, living water. How interesting that that's you know, a prominent portion of Jesus' message when he arrives, right? I'm living water. You know, he cries out there on the last day of the feast. Any, any, on the last day of the feast, anyone who's thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. You know, give him living water, a flow out of him. You know, he'll become torrents of living water. It's a message from the Lord. Um, and I, I mean that. Um, sort of in a blanket sense. This is the character of God. Daily refreshing. Daily supply. Daily fulfillment. That's what the Lord is you know, giving to the entire human race. And, and what do we do? We carve out for ourselves our sister. Well, just, you know, I was five years old when I was in that Sunday school class and raised my hand and prayed that prayer of salvation. And I, you know, I'm 19 years old, I entered the ministry and I just and look at all the stuff I know about the Bible. And, and am I getting up every morning and getting in the Word and in prayer? Am I am I letting that flow through my life? Is that what's flowing through my life into your life? Is that daily pursuit, or am I sitting here reaching into the past and? dragging up something I've stored to try and give. The Lord and his fulfillment needs to be that daily refreshing. Now, move forward to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, and as this whole thing is progressing, you, you get this message. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family. I will bring you to Zion. The invitation of salvation. You're mine, you belong to me. Yes, children, but you're more like a bride. I've married you. You belong to me. It's not something that uh, you you have to be concerned about. I, I can have a relationship with you that is the most intimate you could ever experience in this world. Marriage. He compares the offer to these backslidden people as an offer of marriage, an opportunity of marriage. That's gracious. When God will look at a backslidden people and say, I want you as bride. Jeremiah chapter 3, continuing in verse 22, he says again, return backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, 
we uh, do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. You know, they, they respond in that way, that those, the one from the city, the two from a, uh, a family that do come to the Lord, they respond with, yes, you know, you are our God. Excuse me. And we are your children. <clears throat> In chapter 4, looking at verse 3, it says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. And notice this, you guys. Do not sow among the thorns. Did you get, did you get that? You might want to underline, Do not sow among the thorns. And here's, here's why I think that you need to underline that in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 3 because in Matthew chapter 13 verse 3 J Jesus is teaching the parable of the sower and he spoke to them the things uh, to them in parables saying behold a sower went out to sow the thorns there are the things of the world so when he's telling them in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 3 Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. He's telling his newly uh, revived and restored children who were backslidden, who have come to him, break up the hard ground. Break up your, your, your heart that's hard and stony and thorny. Get ready to take the seed in, the word of God. Get ready to take it. Get rid of the things. of the, Do not plant amongst the thorns. And that is the prominent portion of their temptation at that point. <laughs> now, Israel had at that point ruled God out of their national public life. So when he's addressing them and calling them backslidden, they as a nation have relegated their religion to just that area. Yep, we're Jewish religiously and we have the temple and right. But that, that just stays there. You know, out here, we do whatever we want to. In there, you know, we might even be out here doing whatever we want to. And then we'll go in there and participate in our religion. But as soon as we turn out and come out, they're done. They've really developed that mindset of rejecting God uh, as a national public life. 67% of Americans do not believe there is any such thing as right or wrong. How about that? You you think you 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 etch that somewhere in your heart. That's the current statistic. They do not believe that there's any such thing as right or wrong. They have that whole relatively relativity approach to yeah 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 it's right for me it might not be right for you. Yeah, and we're talking about like real morality. Like, uh, is it right to? you know, defend yourself against someone who's trying to murder you. And then they sit around and wring their hands and debate about whether there's any right or wrong in that situation and go through all the scenarios you want to. In the end, they have truly adopted the mentality of relativism that just says there is no determining that there, because they stem from there's no truth. And if there's no truth, then there can't be a, what a, what a horrible, tormented, confused state of existence. Dangerous state of existence, right? Nothing, nothing right or wrong. Good. So when somebody beats you up and takes your money away, they didn't actually rob you? 
because for them that was right. I mean, it might have been wrong for you, but you can't declare that upon them because that was right for them. It's a messed up mentality. You know, if you try to study any of that, it just leads to more and more confusion as you move along. So the judgment of God has begun in our nation. There are people that, you know, are confused about that. When you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Think about that. They suppress the truth. Uh, there's so much of that going on everywhere right now. It's just amazing to look around, at particularly our culture, and say they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then in verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Now that's a spiritual uncleanness, but it also most directly is referring to a sexual uncleanness as a result of the spiritual uncleanness. I think that's a summary of our nation. You know, given them over, suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, and now given over to uncleanness. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 1 says, For this reason God gave them to vile passions. And we are seeing the vile passions, you know, meted out in our culture every single day. Why in the world does the church sit around with all of this around us and wonder together about, is this the wrath of God? Are we experiencing the punishment of God? Is this God correcting us? Yes, is the answer. And it's going to continue and it'll get worse if, if we don't, as a people, you know, fear him and, and follow him and, uh, Revere him. So <clears throat> in chapters 5 and 6 of Jeremiah, uh, all of that um, uh, wonderful reform that's going on in those two chapters is just that. It's, it's just reform. It's not revival. It, you know, the, the nation of Israel at that point is... You know, they got a king that's mandating that things should be uh, righteous and good and godly, and so you know they have uh, you know as a as a nation at least cooperated with that. You know they they haven't outright rebelled against it, nor have they outright joined it in a fervence uh, to see that it you know would catch and spread. So in chapters 5 and 6, there's a reform that's going on, but it's not a revival, uh, as you read through uh, Jeremiah. When I was reading some of the, the commentary on this, one of the pastors that was making comment on how it had affected the culture, he had what I thought was a very honest opinion of how people get caught up, even if it's reform, they get caught up in it, they're, they're not... They're not really revived. It's just a movement of the culture rather than an individual choice and a revival that's happening in their heart. And his statement was that any pig can fly in a tornado. Yeah, there's a big thing going on. Whoa, oh, I got caught up in it. You know, uh, yeah, but are you personally being changed? For me, it was just a very poetic you know, way of describing a lot of what we see. Oh, there's a big movement over here, and everybody rushes over there. Oh, there's a big movement over here, and everybody rushes over there. Is is this truly that the people there 
have had something, or is it just a tornado picking up a few pigs along the way? Consider Jeremiah chapter six, verse thirteen. It says, "Because it says because from the least of them even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely." It's a summary of the nation, and and Jeremiah is laying it out bare of this is who we are as a people. Let's stop trying to deceive ourselves. Now, in chapter 7, uh, verses 2 through 4, and again, this is to give the outline, the Lord says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And that was a reference to them, are these. We are the temple of the Lord, is what they were saying. Now, essentially, what their message was, is as long as we go to church, everything's fine. As long as we go to church, everything's fine. You think about how much of our culture is engaged in that. I'm not talking about the heathens that don't want anything. Think about how much of that which proclaims itself to be Christian functions that way. You could confront them on any issue. And what are they? I go to church. You know, and often they'll they'll even have that attitude of anger. Like, I go to church. You know, like, like, who are you, is is essentially what they're saying. What they're saying in that moment is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And the Lord is saying, no, not, not even remotely are you the temple of the Lord. That's quite a, a scathing rebuke that the Lord would put out in that way. Now, you can also look at Jeremiah chapter 2 through chapter 51 in light of Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, I've given this many, many times, so it's not new, but I want to give you that summary of Jeremiah chapter two, verse uh, Jeremiah chapter two through chapter fifty-one, and what was just said in Revelation chapter two, verse five, and it is: remember, repent, repeat, and it's that simple. You have to start with a remembering. If we've wandered and drifted and fallen. If you don't look back to where you were and go, oh, I'm a long ways down. <laughs> I've fallen off, you know, a huge distance. I didn't, you know, if you can't recognize the backsliding, if you're not comparing where you were to where you are, if you're not remembering first, then couple that with the repentance. Turn around. Go the opposite direction. Well, how do I do that? Repeat the things you were doing at first. That's really how simple it is. 
Were you getting up early and being in the Word? Were you in prayer? Were you going to every service in a week? Were you, you know, listening to worship songs? Were you, were you sharing your faith? What were you doing then? That that was part of. It wasn't what caused you to be right. It's because you were right. You were doing things then. What were you doing? Remember what you were doing. Repent of what you're currently doing and repeat what you were doing. Let the Lord fulfill your life. So to close, Jeremiah 39, you see the fall of Jerusalem. 40 through 42, uh, ministry to those that were left behind is what you see going on there. 43 and 44, he's taken to Egypt, or they're taken to Egypt. 46 through 51, prophecy to the surrounding nations, particularly Moab, Egypt, uh, the Philistines, Damascus, and Babylon. In chapter 52, the prophecy is fulfilled, and he recaps them very nicely in chapter 52. And then, of course, we already said that in chapter 52, everything that he's saying, he's able to conclude this has all been fulfilled by the hand and the work of the Lord. So, um, 10 minutes of uh, 8. There's no way I can just break into the opening chapter and begin, but you know that's that's the uh, introduction I wanted to give us so that when we begin next week in our study, we really have an overview of uh, what Jeremiah's uh, whole ministry and purpose was in delivering uh, this message to the people of Judah. So we'll jump in next week with chapter one and uh, begin our progress through the book of Jeremiah. You guys stand with me and we'll pray. Father, I thank you. We're able to be here. I pray that you would fill us with that living water. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, I think more importantly, not even so much for us, more importantly, that we would be automatically be filled, but that it would flow out of us. We see that the primary message of your whole existence is that you are a servant. And you demonstrated that when you came and you ministered to the human race. You're a servant. Lord, help us to be servants. Fill us with your spirit. Overflow us. Cause us to have torrents of living water flowing out of us. That we would reflect your character and be your ministers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.